Welcome to Queer We Are, John Barrent. Thank you. John, prior to writing Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, you were a journalist, an editor, a columnist. You even did some writing for television. But Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil was your first published novel. Am I correct? In fact, to be completely correct, it's not a novel. It's nonfiction. But it's been called a novel so often, I just don't try to correct people. Okay. Well, actually, we're going to talk about that. So that's good. To say it did well is an understatement. As a first book, it was a massive bestseller. You are on the New York Times bestseller list for well over 200 weeks. And you are a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. John, I don't know if you're aware of this, but that is not typical of most first-time writers. That's what I'm told. Did you have any inkling you had really done it well? Well, I knew, yeah, I knew I had done it well for my own purposes, my own by my own judgment. I didn't know how it would fly with with the public. I had no idea how it would be received. But when I was nearing completion of it, somebody asked how it's going. I said, I think people are going to enjoy the book. Uh, I don't know how many people will read it, but I think those who do will enjoy it. That's all I knew. I mean, to be perfectly fair, if someone who read the book was fair about it, they'd like it. They'd, they'd enjoy it, the read. That's all I could, That's as far as I went in my head. But my publisher was sure all along that it would be a bestseller. I, I said, you say that to all of your new book <laughs> people. And they said, no, we don't. Yours is going to be a bestseller. Okay, well, I want to talk more about this. But first, let's do our introduction and tell people what they're listening to. I'm your host, Brad Shreve. I'm John Barrett. And Queer We Are. I'm Brad Shreve, and this is Queer We Are, the show where each week I talk with entertainers, activists, politicians, artists, and more of the most interesting LGBTQ people from diverse backgrounds. From their stories of success, find motivation from the challenges they overcame and what they learned along the way. My guest, John Barrett, grew up in Syracuse, New York. He earned a bachelor's in English from Harvard University in 1961. He moved to New York City and was an associate editor of Esquire at the age of 21. He was the editor of New York Magazine from 77 to 79 and wrote a monthly column for Esquire for over 10 years. He also wrote for the Dick Cavett Show for a few years and I believe some other shows. I'm not sure about that. We'll find out. Also the David Frost Show. Oh, the David Frost Show. Okay. But he's most known for Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. So, John, in your own words, what is success? Success, it exists within, your, within yourself when you think you've accomplished the deed you wanted to accomplish, and it exists outside when people say to you, well done, that's successful. We can have one without the other. People can say to you, well done, and you can think, it stinks, and I know it. But you see what I'm getting, getting at? The interior and exterior forms of success. And I don't know any author or writer that doesn't have imposter syndrome, which means how much people tell you you're great, you, you don't believe it, and think they'll eventually figure it out. Do you get imposter syndrome at times? Absolutely. Frequently. What kind of syndrome are you calling it? Imposter syndrome. Oh, imposter. Oh, yeah, right. Well, 
Yes. Well, I don't. I never thought of it that way. But I, I, I do think a lot of the fuss is ridiculous, and uh, it's I am who I am, and it's not what they think it is. So it's imposter. Yes. Now you grew up in Syracuse. What was your life like growing up in Syracuse? Well, it's it's a. Uh, I kind of loved it. It was it's a quiet town. I mean, there were a quarter of a million people in it, but everyone lived in houses. Uh, you know, in individual houses, and. You knew everyone in your neighborhood. I walked to school. Um, the weather was wonderful. It's a beautiful part of uh, the world, but it also was a very Republican city, which meant that they were easily shocked by aberrant behavior, by unusual people. They would, you know, it's um, they couldn't. People in in Syracuse didn't seem to me open to new ideas and strange ideas. And one of the strange ideas was homosexuality. And they were opposed to that, and they were horrified by it, and you better not be one. That was the feeling. Um, although, there, I, don't, I don't know how others reacted to that. At the time, I certainly wasn't talking to anybody about it. And your friend, Sean Strube, who founded Paz Magazine, right. he is now mayor in a small town in a very red part of Pennsylvania. Did you ever expect to see something like that? No. And I think it's absolutely incredible that it's happened. And it's a very Republican. It's a very uh, redneck and conservative part of uh, Pennsylvania, even. And uh, Sean is not just the mayor. He is married to a, to a man, to mm -hmm. uh, Javier. And they know that. They know where his house is. And I think it takes a lot of balls to do that, to, you know, carry that off. And he's done it remarkably well. It does take a lot of balls. And he, I know he is extremely proud of it. And I, I think it's outstanding. Yeah, well, he should be proud of it. Yes, I agree. So one thing I'm curious, your first novel was in Savannah, Georgia, but you grew up in Syracuse. Right. Did you ever consider writing stories in Syracuse? No. The reason I selected uh, Savannah, and I, I wasn't looking for a place at all. I simply, I was living in New York, and at one point, I, I, one of my best friends was from Georgia. And it came to pass that he and I and a couple of other friends went to Savannah, which he knew very well. You know, he said, it's a beautiful city. You ought to, we ought to have a little trip there. So five of us went down to Savannah, and I was bowled over by the city, by the people. They were an odd lot. I was thrilled by that. So I didn't just decide, I'm not going to write about Syracuse, I'm going to write about Savannah. I wasn't even looking for it. I just happened to stumble upon Savannah and instantly fell in love with the place. I still love it. My friends here in New York who are from Savannah, uh, from Georgia, they knew Savannah well enough to take us around to uh, people they knew. Two people that I met then became chapters, uh, no, became characters in Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. One was Jim Williams, the uh, star of, good, of Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Uh, he, when I met him, he had already shot and killed his lover, Danny Hansford. Mm -hmm. Or even tried once and found guilty. In his beautiful mansion, waiting for his appeal to come through, and that finally happened, and, and his conviction was reversed. 
and he was put in jail. And that conviction was reversed, and he was <laughs> let out. And he had four trials as it happened. But I met Jim Williams right away, and he, and I also met uh, the the wonderful lawyer Joe Odom, who had constantly throwing parties in, in his house, and he would he would sort of squat in, in somebody's house, people he didn't. He didn't live there, but he, he he was friends with people, and uh, he would just when they were away, he would live in their house for six weeks and throw parties, and it was very genial. He's a wonderful character. Anyway, so there are two characters right there that I met immediately on my first visit to Savannah. So I was well launched in my Savannah experience. This is an unusual thing. Also, you don't normally have it all. Uh, lay it out in front of you when you start to write a book. And indeed, I didn't either, but it, I had the elements in place, and then the other elements came into place as I, as I lived through that whole experience. Believe it or not, we have some people listening to the show that haven't read the book or seen the movie, and I'm sorry for them. Can you give just a really brief synopsis? All right. Savannah is a beautiful southern city off on the Georgia coast, surrounded by piney woods and the ocean. It's, it's far away from, 300 miles away from Atlanta. There's no really close city. So it's, it's isolated and it's quirky and it, it, you know, it's an inward-looking city. It is absolutely beautiful. Uh, there are oak trees and Spanish moss lining the streets. And James Oglethorpe, who founded Georgia, landed there, and he laid out the first plan of Savannah, which was to have squares at even intervals, like a chessboard. And those squares, they were open areas and used at first as gathering places for the community. Well, there ended up, by the time I got there, there were 24 of such squares, and every single one of them had beautiful houses around them, and trees and vegetation was terrific. So uh, that's how that started. And it, its apartness from the rest of Georgia and the rest of America was palpable. They, people in Savannah did not care about going anywhere else. They, few of them went to Atlanta. You know, they had friends maybe in Atlanta. Many of them had not been to Charleston. It was only an hour and a half away. So they were cloistered in their beautiful bower of a city. So that appealed to me enormously. It, it formed the universe of my book. And it was all Savannah and no interruptions from the outside. You know, they say that um, Savannah is not affected by outside influences. Companies would try out their products in Savannah because it was a pure and uninfluenced city. The people were, were naive, and they had never heard of this and that. So they were, they were just the perfect uh, subjects for experimentation. Uh, and, uh, but, and also, the, as I say, there were a lot of very strange people. If, if you read the book, you'll encounter some of them. Oh, yes. And the sound of the voice, the, people had a, a very nice accent, and uh, it was a, my, a very general place, even though there were murders that happened frequently. So anyway, there were those trials. And in the course of following Jim Williams and his murder case, uh, I met all sorts of people in Savannah. Well, they didn't all have to do with the murder case, but I found a way of 
winding them into my narrative of the murder and the follow-up. So it does seem like, although it's a lot of different stories combined into a, uh, into a mass, it's really, I, uh, it's several stories, dozens of stories, and I just use them to uh, bring Savannah to life. I don't know if that genre had been used before uh, as such, but um, that's, that was my modus uh, operandi. Well, yes, in it's as quirky as can be. People are all eccentrics, and they thrive on the fact that they're eccentric. But do they realize they're eccentrics or just that everybody else is an eccentric? Yeah, they themselves don't realize it, but but what they do is they prize eccentricity in other people. Mm-hmm. Sometimes not realizing they themselves were eccentric. And people like to talk about other people, particularly if they were weird or strange or eccentric. And so the people who are eccentric and strange and weird and oddballs know that they're they're admired, they're they're loved because uh, people watch them, talk about them, and they feel uh, embraced by the city and the people. Well, one thing that surprises me is people seem they're very worldly. They drink a lot. Not typical of a southern town, in my opinion. Now, I grew up in North Carolina, and it wasn't a small town, but it wasn't anything like Savannah. Are you familiar with the ABC stores in North Carolina? No. Okay, so for those that don't know, it is not legal to sell liquor in a liquor store, a grocery store, or a a pharmacy. The state runs what are called ABC stores, alcohol beverage control centers, and that is the only place that you can go buy buy alcohol. It's run by the state. And my vision of the South that I grew up in is a friend of mine had a father that lived in a small town of Liberty, which had 2,600 people, and it had an ABC store. But when he wanted to buy liquor, he would drive 10 miles to the other small town of Ramsour so that nobody in his city would see him walk into the ABC store to buy liquor. Uh-huh. And there were people in Ramsour that would drive over to his town and do the same. That is my picture of the South. Everything is about appearances. And in your novel, it seems like everything is also about appearances, but in a much different way. Yes. There's more tolerance for the uh, for the oddballs, for the uh, you know nonconformists, more appreciation. How important is church life to the folks in Savannah? It's very very important, but not to everybody. There are really committed uh, churchgoers for sure, and the religious people. And uh, I, I wouldn't say that it's a, it's run by uh, the town is run by the church. Uh, although the church has, has a big influence in Savannah, but it, it, didn't, it doesn't cramp the style of Savannians at all. One of my favorite lines in the novel, and to me it kind of sets at the stage of what you were trying to portray Savannah as, and I, I can't remember her name. She said, most of the social set were more worldly than Mrs. Moreland. Oh, we knew, said John Myers. Of course we knew. We aren't aware of the details, naturally, because Jim exercised discretion, which was the right thing to do. And we are talking about being gay. But all along, we congratulate ourselves about Jim's social success because of what it seemed to say about us. We thought it proved Savannah was cosmopolitan, that we were sophisticated enough to accept a gay man socially. Absolutely true. 
And then he had to go and wreck it by murdering his lover. <laughs> well, yes. That didn't give a very good image. <laughs> As a matter of fact, he, he, most of his friends stood by him. Oh, they did? He was an absolutely charming person. Very, very smart. Very successful. And he, he, had a, and he was fun to be around also. Unless you were at the other end of his gun. <laughs> Is he still the only person that's been tried for murder four times for the same case? Yes. Oh, well, I haven't heard of any others, uh, but he was at the time the only person. I want to talk about the book and the transition to the movie, but first I have a question for you. How do you define happiness, John? Huh. Happiness is uh, uh, the absence of worry, looking forward to events coming up in your life, having friends you treasure. Uh, but the worry part is really important because all these things could be, you know, all your ducks could be in a row when something's eating at you. You're worried about this or that, which will temper the happiness. But happiness is to have everything going your way. And often in the future, everything you can see is rosy, and that's happiness. Um, that may not be the happiness you, 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 as you would describe it, or other people would describe it, but um, that's what came, what came to mind first when you asked me. Well, I asked you earlier about success, and I believe the same is true as happiness. It's subjective. Yeah. There is no one answer. Absolutely. And thank God, because um, as far as success is concerned, a person can be successful, and no one else will know it or congratulate him or, 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 or confirm that he was successful, but in fact, he'll know. Along those same lines, a lot of people see a real backlash against the LGBT community going on right now. I will say Florida is the prime example. What gives you hope? I'm talking about just uh, the future for LGBTQ people in general. Well, I think enormous strides have been made. I mean, uh, to the point where... Um, uh, the transgender phenomenon is fairly common now. Now, they're transgender people. I don't. Most of them, or many of them, claim that they are not homosexual. That they are living their lives as they were intended to in another body. I've, I, I don't know if I understand that or not, but I understand that they're sincere about it. However, I would say that's an enormous stride right there. And the acceptance of the idea of gay. I mean, if you go back to when it was accepted, you you would be hard-pressed to convince anyone from those days about convincing what the scene is now, how, how frequently you encounter gay this or that or people or, or things or phenomena in every kind, every part of life on television. In the movies. Now, God, that was... Remember, I remember when Elizabeth Taylor, in, I forget the name of the movie, she said the word shit. It was traumatic for most of the viewers. Mm-hmm. That was the first time that happened. Now, give me a break. The words are this un, you know, unbelievable. So a lot of progress has been made in many ways that people don't think about. And... What shocks people uh, has changed as well. Things that are, were incredibly shocking, world-shattering, are now commonplace. 
And there's a lot about gay and gay phenomenon, gay people, that has to do with that, that, that falls into that category. Of it was once shocking, now it's not. Yeah, along those lines, I live in the California desert, but I drive an hour to Loma Linda because the medical care is so much better there at Loma Linda University. When I first signed up for them, I was a bit concerned, though, because it is a Seventh-day Adventist-operated church. So I, I thought, are they going to be gay-friendly? What am I going to feel like? And I read their history. They were adamantly against people being openly gay on campus and could be expelled. There was no gay groups on campus. It was unheard of. This was a very, very short time ago. Now on that campus, there is a very active LGBTQ group. In addition, this year, they had their first sex reassignment surgery. And I'm sorry for my folks out there. If I'm not getting the term right, I apologize. But that is that is astounding. So you're asking me how I feel about homosexuality today and gay today. Look at what we've just been talking about. And it is mind-blowing, uh, the, the changes and the acceptance. And the, uh, you know, even people who don't like, can't stand it, they never would have known, they, they wouldn't have heard the words or any reference to that in, in public life, in, in TV and radio and movies. It, it's just now pervasive and people are coming to understand it better, whether they like it or not. And the people who who are turned off by it, I'm becoming used to it too. I think a lot of people have been uh, brought around to accepting, in some form, accepting homosexuality, increasingly. I know this has happened to you. You and your friends and family have been sitting around for an hour and a half, flipping through Netflix, trying to decide what to watch. And maybe you have narrowed it down to two movies. And when that happens, the deciding factor sometimes comes to which one has the best reviews. Well, you know what? The same thing happens with podcasts. So do a humanitarian thing and leave a review for Queer We Are. That way you will have made the world a better place because now they can relax and enjoy the show. So something I'm, I'm curious about that's different from the, the movie to the novel. In the movie, John Cusack's character is uh, John Kelso, I believe it is? Yeah. John Kelso. Yeah. In the book, the narrator never gives his name, and it's kind of assumed it's you. Yes, it is. Okay. So I love that style of writing, and you call it nonfiction, but I call that, and what I think is commonly used, it's similar to like In Cold Blood is literary nonfiction or creative nonfiction? Yeah, both. Literary nonfiction I like very much, and creative nonfiction uh, I like almost as much. But literary nonfiction is what I like to think of it as being. That's what I think of it as. So I was really surprised to see that it's listed under nonfiction because clearly it's not. I mean, you weren't there at the events. But I love that when a person puts themselves there. I had a guest on six months ago that did that in his book, and it was great. It was all from his standpoint. What I did was I, well, I didn't make, make it up. I would interview people over and over and over again and far and wide so that I would build up factual aspects of whatever incident 
uh, I, I wanted to write about. And so I really had a huge, thick notebook of, uh, of remarks and, and, and recollections by people who were at the scene here or there. I, I, I relied on, on, on what I was able to get from people who were there in Savannah where it mattered and where the story happened to go. It, it's not, I don't, creative nonfiction means you're making it up. Literary nonfiction doesn't make, have that uh, implication. So I, I, I prefer literary nonfiction. It's all, it's a very high sounding uh, title anyway. And it sounds like what you did is took the things that you learned from the locals and you created the narrator character. Yes. And that's common because otherwise you could have 60 characters in a book like we do in real life and nobody would know what the hell, who was who. Uh, so if you tie people, string people together on a narrative thread, they're much easier to remember. And their influence, uh, their effect on the story or the mood of the story continues. Uh, I would introduce a character and then I'd come back to him uh, for later during the, during the course of the uh, story. Well, I'm going to tell you something I saw on YouTube that uh, made my blood boil, and I don't mind uh, telling you about a bad review. Because, and, I, and I know you get an occasional bad review, but she, her bad review is ridiculous because she says, for a true crime novel, it took forever to get to the true crime. And she said, and then I heard an interview where the author said that some of it was fictional, and now I just want to toss the whole book aside. I don't know what's true and what's not. And I was just dumbfounded, and I, I normally am not antagonistic on social media, but my response to her was, please read In Cold Blood by Truman Capote, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas by Hunter S. Thomas, or The Liars Club, Mary Mary Hawk. And I ended it very mean. In the future, I suggest you stick with genres you understand, because in this instance, <laughs> you clearly have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> Well, thank you. I'm so glad. Hurrah. There was a bit of a frou-frou about, about that. The, as soon as the book came out, reviewers were uniformly, uh, universally favorable and even more than favorable. But at a certain point, after the book had been on the bestseller list for uh, three years, Jealousy set in, and, and people got on their high horses and, and took pot shots at the book. And um, I had to get used to it. And some of the things, one of the things that they, they focused on was the fact that it wasn't all, strictly speaking, nonfiction. I had said at the back of the book, I had said that I had taken some storytelling liberties, but none that changed the, the flow of events or the characters. The interesting fact to me that you put yourself in the story meeting, oh, I'm sorry, I forget the name of uh, Jim Williams? Yeah. Yes. Yes. You put yourself in the story meeting Jim Williams and getting to know him before he was he murdered the young man. And you didn't meet him until after that occurred. Right. I like that you put yourself in before that because I didn't feel like I was reading a textbook. I felt like I was a part of the story. I'll tell you how I did it and why I think it works. I met Jim Williams at his house. He'd been convicted of murder and he was out on appeal. And then all the action happens after that. 
what I did was I, I put myself into the scene before the murder happens. And so the audience gets used to, used to these characters and gets the feeling of Savannah. In other words, this, was, this, this shooting did not happen in a vacuum. But if I started the book by saying, I went with friends to Savannah and we went to see a man who had just been convicted of murder. Where is the suspense? None. It's gone. Mm-hmm. So I thought, I like suspense. I always like to write that way. So why don't I meet him before it all happens? And it took some turning around, but I, I interviewed people, many, many, many people for every scene that I wrote. And I got it as close to the uh, factual truth uh, as I could. All the air would have gone out of what I wanted to uh, use as uh, suspense when this very prominent man in the most beautiful house in town up and shoots a kid and kills him. If I said that in the first sentence that it happened, <laughs> all right, okay, that's the fact. But, but if, I, if I bring it up, and you know, uh, bring it up past the set middle of the book, I was in the cocktail party after uh, the book came out, and uh, it was at Tina Brown's house, and a lot of uh, writers were there, uh, and many of whom I knew, and then Tom Wolfe came over to me. He hadn't spoken to me since the, uh, uh, since the book came out, and he said, congratulations. He said, boy, you t- it took a lot of nerve to wait to page 175 for the murder. And I said, I had to introduce all my characters first. Then I felt like it. he said, good for you. So it was, it, was a, it was a literary ploy. I felt once the murder happened, no one would want to meet anybody new who wasn't involved in that case. So all the quirky people I wanted to inter- introduce casually and, you know, gently into the story, it would have been, oh, they would have been mowed uh, under by the excitement of the murder trial and, and, and the, the mood change uh, of the murder trial. So I had Savannah at his most charming, bucolic, lovable, charming uh, city and uh, all these weirdos popping up. Then, boom, it was a murder. Now, see, I write mystery novels, and there are mystery authors that write similar to what you did. For the most part, an editor will tell them, you need to start right in the action. And they would have started with the murder. Yeah. I don't like to compare books to movies. I, I, it drives me crazy when they say, oh, the, book isn't, the movie wasn't as good as the book. They're two entirely different things. Your book was 400 pages. You cannot fit 400 pages in a two-hour movie. No. So to me, it's apples and oranges. But I will say what people that watched the movie really, really missed is the first half of the book is not about the murder. The main character in the first half of the book is Savannah. Yeah, absolutely. Kurt Vonnegut said, my favorite part of your book is the first half before the murder. Uh, I can understand why. And you see, if I'd had the murder first, nobody would be content to just settle back and learn about this quirky town, Savannah. It it, it would be impossible. And I realized that right away. So I took the air out of the tires before we got going. And I was able to get in all the lovely, sweet stuff before the action really hyped up to uh, the murder case it was eventually. Yeah, but here's your skill, John. As I was reading the novel, I read, I read it again before you came on. I'd read it years ago. And remember, I loved it. But I, I never remember details. Like, once I'm done with the book, I can tell you I loved it or I hated it. But I, I, can't, I can't tell you the details. So I, 
I went back and I read it again. And as I'm reading it, I thought, there's not a whole lot of story going on here other than learning about the city of Savannah and learning about the eccentric people, the quirky people, and getting to know them. And I was loving every word. And I thought, in another writer's hands, this would bomb big time. Well, and, uh, because I don't, if they, the fact of the matter is, if you want to do a book about the murder, forget all the, well, there are some, were some quirky characters involved with that, but the, the mass of them that I put in the book were not at all involved in the murder. So they wouldn't be in the book most charming eccentrics that I encountered. And I wove into the narrative. First of all, I don't think a, a writer would necessarily meet most of those people. So there, there's an element of the book that just wouldn't, wouldn't exist in, in somebody else's telling of the story. And I know the answer to this, but I'm going to answer it anyway. The man that was paid $10 a day to walk the dog and then continued to be paid after the dog died, pretending he was walking the dog, that really is true? Yes, absolutely. It made me laugh. Mr. Glover. That's incredible. Wonderful character. And I would see him frequently. In the movie, Clint Eastwood did something ridiculous. He had this man walking down Bull Street with his dog, and a leash that stood up, I mean, it was a high, it, it, it stood in midair uh, from his hand and with the, uh, his, the collar standing up like a halo. And so you're walking, this, that is a, an interpretation of my story that is completely ridiculous. Mr. Glover did not, he walked the dog, but he didn't have a leash after he died. <laughs> and people would come up to him and say, uh, How's the dog? He said it was fine. It's very happy and frisky. And I noticed that because that whole invisible dog walk thing with the collar, that was really uh, a gimmick that people were buying like 20 or 30 years ago. And when I saw that, I thought, I don't remember that being explained in the book. I thought he just walked. So I'm glad that you cleared it up for me. That did not happen. When I met him, the dog was alive. No, no, no. I can't remember, but when I met him, he was just walking. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he had maybe walked the dog earlier in the morning. I don't know. But I explained it, though. I mean, th- th- I did talk about the dog. You don't, when you first meet Mr. Glover, uh, you don't uh, see, you don't hear about the dog. Oh, but I had, here's what it is. I had heard about the dog, and I figured he'd get around to telling me about the dog, who was an invisible dog walking along with us. But he didn't, we didn't get around it. We, so we, we talked about so many other things that when I said goodbye to him, uh, uh, he hadn't brought up the dog and I hadn't either. So uh, if, if you look for that in the book, you'll see that it arises on one of our, our uh, subsequent strolls down Bull Street. And that's woven in very, and he explains it. It's very sweet. One thing that the movie missed is there's a scene where Mr. Glover goes to the judge and says, you don't have to pay me money anymore. The dog has died. And the judge pretended. He's like, no, he's not. He's sitting right there. And Mr. Glover said, oh, and he continued to play the game so he could get paid. The judge is the one that egged him on. That's not explained in the movie. So he kind of just looks like a crazy man. And that bothered me. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Originally, I thought you wrote the screenplay, and I found out I was wrong. 
Right. Uh, but you sold the movie rights. Did Clint Eastwood buy buy them or the studio? His his company Malpaso. So he no he bought it um, and he he went to Warner and said I'm going to do this movie and they said fine so I guess they bankrolled part of it not all I don't know how that that worked but uh, it was his decision he bought it and he got got a deal with Warner Warner Brothers. The reason I ask is I know of two authors. Uh, one is renowned mystery author Lawrence Block, who mm-hmm. was one time president of the Mystery Writers of America. The other is Mr. Stephen King. And both of them said when they sell a movie, they let it go because they are not movie makers. They're novelists. Stephen King seems like he's not doing that as much more. He seems much more active in his productions because he's been very unhappy with some of them. A friend of mine had dinner with him, and he, he begged her not to ever go see Children of the Corn. um so how did it i'm presuming you had to release some control as well how did that feel was that really hard i accepted the inevitable before it even started i knew that they were spending millions of dollars on this movie and that and that uh i had signed away rights and they they had every right to do what they wanted i mean i could be furious i could have spoken out about things that i didn't like or were offensive to me but I was ready to see huge changes made in the story. And uh, it, it, my case is perhaps not unique, but unusual, because I knew a Clint Eastwood movie, A Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil, was going to be a resounding success, or at least it would, it would publicize the title of my book to the point where it would, you know, hype sales for a long time. Well, that's exactly what happened. Clint Eastwood's movie, Midnight, came out the week after, week before Thanksgiving of 1998. And there were two weeks before and after Christmas in which the book sold a quarter of a million copies in hardcover, both weeks, each week. So I knew that this was coming. Well, I wasn't going to get in the way of this, 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 <laughs> this freight train. And uh, it was a huge financial boost. The, uh, as you know, the book was already on the bestseller list for four years, mm-hmm. over four. And uh, but this uh, over over the that two week period, it increased the, the level of sales at that point, and then from then on, and it's still selling very nicely. I think it's about fifty thousand copies a year. Yeah, not too shabby. Yeah. And now, John, when did you come out? You know, it's a very gradual thing. I made no pretense of being straight. I would go out to dinner with girls, Mm -hmm. women, and men. And uh, and when I came to New York, I hadn't come out. But I hung around a lot of gay people. And I made no pretense. I, I didn't present myself as either straight or gay. But clearly, when I was with gay people, I was joining the fun and being part of it. I just thought that a, a, sta- a, a statement of my being gay was an intrusion. Uh, I just didn't, I, I was uncomfortable about it, but I've never pretended to be anything but since I, you know, came in here. I became an adult. Be yourself, and eventually people will figure it out. Well, it didn't take much figuring either. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, again, I'm going to bring up something I read online. It was on a, some asked questions site. I can't remember which one it was. But somebody asked, is John Barrett gay? And one of the first responses was, 
didn't you see the movie? John Cusack has a girlfriend. He's not gay. And then the next response was, and I don't know if you can tell me if it's true. John went to school with Barney Frank. So of course he's gay. Well, it's true. Barney Frank was in my class at Harvard. Yes. But that reasoning is bananas. <laughs> So, uh, because I, mean, I, I went to school with Barney Frank, I'd be gay. Well, it's laughable. I guess if you're in a classroom and Barney Frank is sitting there, that means everybody's gay. I, I don't know. It spreads like a disease. <laughs> <laughs> Back to Syracuse. Your mother wrote a book called Small World, and I guess it was based on your family? Yes. Yes. My name was Bruce, as a matter of fact. And Bruce. Well, that's kind of a nice masculine name. <laughs> what was she before she wrote the novel? Was she the traditional housewife? No, she wasn't. Never once, when I, as long as I knew her, she never went to the beauty parlor. She combed her hair and wound it into a bun. Very pretty. She was a very beautiful woman, but never went to the hairdresser. The term hairdresser never was heard in my house. My father didn't go to a hairdresser either. Well, back then, men went to barbers. Yes. Uh, she plays, played the piano beautifully. She was an intellectual and admired by, by those who knew her. And she was admired for that, for her brilliance and for her beauty. And, uh, but she, had no, she was shy. She had no ambition to you know, emerge from herself. She she was the kind she had kind of quirks. I have quirks. She had quirks. She could not cross the street at a cross section, across uh, crosswalk. She would have to cross four streets in order to get across one, so that no traffic would be coming from behind her as she crossed the street. Does that make sense to you? Oh, yes, it does. She would have to go four crossings instead of one. Yeah, that's what she was doing. Now, when she wrote the book, did that have an impact on you? Yes, because I was in uh, in school. I was in uh, junior high school at the time. I was eleven when it came out, and no one else in my in our class or in my school had a mother who had written a book. And so I was extremely proud. And the newspapers had a couple of features on us because we were the we were the characters in the book. Um, and in fact, I wrote one page of the book. Oh, you did? My mother had found a notebook in which I had j wrote jottings. And one time, it, it happened that my sister was given a, a watch, and I was not. And instead of complaining about it and demanding one, uh, I wrote it in my, my notebook, and my mother found it. And so what, what it said, the one page said, my description, nine years old, it was eight years old at the time, a, uh, 214 Cambridge Street, Sumner School, 34 people in class, Miss Mosier is a teacher, scar on left eyebrow and right arm, no watch. And that was it? That was my description. <laughs> and she worked from there? Well, I mean, she put that in the middle of, I mean, it was just one little incident in the book. And she told me at some point, I, you know, I, I saw this thing in your, in, on your desk. And I think it's wonderful, and I'm going to put it in the book. And I said, oh, wonderful. <laughs> I was very pleased. My first published work, by the way. She wrote about us, and, uh, and her son, Bruce, uh, after he wasn't given a watch, wrote, wrote his feelings on his, his notebook, she found it. I didn't show it to her. I didn't complain about the watch, but I, had, but I wrote it down. And so she put it in the book. 
Before that, what did little Johnny want to be when he grew up? A movie star. Oh, that's small, <laughs> small thing too. Yeah, I didn't know why or how, but I because movie stars are so admired, and so you know that was that was the reason, I suppose. And it was very glamorous and very handsome or beautiful, so it wouldn't hurt to be a movie star. I thought. So I quickly got over it. So you said, you know, maybe I won't be a movie star and get the glamour and the money. Instead, I'll write a Pulitzer Prize novel that sells like crazy off the shelves. That was a good backup plan. <laughs> Listeners, my guest is John Barrett, and I suggest you read the book and see the movie. Read the book first, because it really, he paints a beautiful picture of Savannah, and it is so engrossing. And then I say, watch the movie Put blinders on and accept it is not going to be like the book, but it's still a damn good movie. So I think you'll be very happy with both of them. Good. I hope you agree with that, John. I do. Um, yes. I really want to thank you for being my guest. I've enjoyed this enormously. Thank you for having me on. Do you enjoy this show? If so, tell a friend. Because the number one way podcasts grow is word of mouth. So pass it on so others can enjoy Queer We Are.